Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Ido Volk in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 27th of November. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. All right, Ido, tell me, how is Berlin? Yeah, Berlin's a bit of an unusual one. Obviously, we work for a British publication, so at least I tend to follow the UK news quite closely. And the big UK news in recent days is that the UK will be unlocking ever so slightly next week. And France is doing the same thing, but Germany is actually tightening its lockdown. So although all three countries have been in roughly the same position locking down in early November, they're diverging slightly ahead of Christmas. So it will be interesting to see how that ends up with the expected spike in COVID transmissions at Christmas and then also in the new year, whether opening up now means that there has to be more locking down in the new year for countries that have opened up more. And how is DC? Well, as predicted by me and also by most people last week, public health experts' warnings were not heeded. Millions of people traveled for Thanksgiving. And it's not that I don't think that there was a way to do it safely. It's just that I doubt that all of those people quarantined for two weeks before getting on a plane or going to a car and taking a trip that involved like using a rest stop and then going into another person's house. So we will see. I mean, you can only choose your choices, right? And this is what they chose. And and we'll see where we're at 10 to 14 days from now, I guess. But it does not give me great confidence about how this holiday season is going to go for the United States during this pandemic. On that gloomy note, we have a great guest an iconic guest this week. But before we get to our our iconic guest, what, Ido, do you think is going to be the moment that you think will go down in history from this week? Yeah, I'm not sure it's going to go down in history, but it's certainly really, certainly really important. It's a video that was released a couple of days ago of a music producer who was really, really badly beaten by police in Paris for basically no reason. He was outside on the street not wearing a mask, and that's illegal in Paris. So he was afraid he'd get a fine. So he went back inside, and then the police followed him inside and beat him for something like 20 minutes. This ties into a really, really contentious debate in France, which is a proposed bill to criminalise publishing videos of police officers on duty, which obviously would make publishing videos of incidents like this a lot more difficult and potentially have a chilling effect on the accountability that these videos produce and... This particular incident, which is horrifying and has drawn comparisons with, for instance, the killing of George Floyd in the summer, really could not have come at a worse time for the for the government because they are precisely at this moment trying to pass this bill. And now, because of the shocking nature of this incident, having to 
potentially backtrack. And what's your moment of the week? My moment comes to us from India. India's most populous state is Uttar Pradesh. And this week, Uttar Pradesh introduced a law that basically it's inspired by this idea of quote unquote love jihad, which is the idea that Muslim men are are trying to change India, to change the religious makeup of India by converting Hindu women to Islam through marriage, which is, it's not true. It's not something that's actually happening, but UP passed this law, which outlaws quote unquote unlawful religious conversions through marriage. And I mean, it still needs to be approved by the BJP state parliament in the next month or so. But it imposes fines and a jail term of up to 10 years if men are found to have converted a woman's religion solely for the purpose of marriage or by use of force, conversion, or misrepresentation, so wrote the Hindu newspaper. And it also gives the state power to declare null those marriages that have been found to be carried out with the sole intention of changing a woman's religion. The problem here, obviously, is that as this is not really happening, the fear is that this law will be used to go after interfaith marriages, right? Because how do you prove a negative, right? You can't prove, oh, I I didn't only marry this woman to forcibly convert her. And it's part of a long pattern of uh, that we've spoken about on this podcast before of not just rising Hindu nationalism in India, but Hindu nationalism being it's not even increasingly at this point, it is accepted, but not just accepted, pushed by some of the most powerful people in the country. With that, on to our guest. This is the most ambitious crossover that has been done in this the history of this podcast. The Marvel Universe has nothing on what we're about to do. We have on our podcast today, the New Statesman and New Statesman Podcast's very own Alva Ray. Alva, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I love that you did that glowing introduction when you've had big names like Kim Darrick on, but this is this, uh, is this the it's, ultimate no, collaboration. It's, it's this, the ultimate collab. Not since Taylor Swift had Bon Iver on the album Folklore. Anyway, um, I don't actually like that song very much. No, it's not my favorite either, just to be honest. Swifties, we're sorry, but not so sorry to not continue with this discussion. So, you know, we wanted to have you on because it seems to me at least, like there has been much ado made in both Ireland and in the UK of President-elect Joe Biden's Irish heritage. I wanted to ask you, one, do you think that that that's right, that people actually are making a big deal about it in Ireland and in in the UK? And if so, why? I think firstly, you are right that people are making a big deal out of it here. I'm, I'm in London at the moment and that this has been a big focus of the coverage of the US election, like the implications for Brexit, for the UK and for Ireland that having Joe Biden as president in America will have. It's funny because it feels like one of the new statesmen where it's difficult to cover either from a UK perspective, as you know, me as their political correspondent, the, the UK politics team, or from your perspective from the US, because it, it kind of crosses all of those boundaries. And, and I often want to defer to you on, on some of this. I think in terms of from a UK perspective, some of the coverage has been really, really dire. And some of the comment from even certain politicians in the UK has been a bit funny. And I suppose the the conversation at its most sensible end, the conversation is about the impact that Joe Biden will have on the Brexit negotiations that are ongoing and the current wrangling over arrangements for the Northern Irish border. When Boris Johnson signed 
a withdrawal agreement with the EU to take us out of the EU at the beginning of this year. He signed the UK up to the Northern Ireland Protocol, which are arrangements that will be in place when we leave the transition period at the end of the year, basically to ensure that there won't be a hard border on the island of Ireland. So obviously there is a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is effectively the EU's only land border with the UK post-Brexit. We're in the transition period at the moment. So even though Brexit has happened, the trading arrangements are all basically the same. So this will only matter from the 1st of January. And the deal that Boris Johnson signed up to basically means that rather than having checks on goods between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which would be incredibly damaging because it's a fundamental tenet of of the Good Friday Agreement that that is a, a frictionless border. That's not made explicit, but it's very much implicit within the spirit of the agreement that Irish people in Northern Ireland should be able to live as though they are Irish on one border with unfettered access over that border. So to avoid checks on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, Boris Johnson signed up to have checks between GB and Northern Ireland instead. He effectively signed up to a regulatory border down the Irish Sea. He had always said that he wouldn't do that because he is at least in theory, in favour of the union and is a unionist. And that runs antithetical to a lot of of Ulster Protestants' values who consider themselves British and want customs within the UK to be unfettered. He basically, at the last minute, changed his mind on that and signed up to a regulatory border down the Irish Sea that will, will come in at the beginning of the transition period. But then, recently... The UK government has signalled that it is prepared to renege on its commitments in international law. So rather than carrying out those checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, it's planning on potentially not doing that and is bringing its internal market bill, which which would renege on, on international law through Parliament at the moment, to huge controversy from the EU, from the Republic of Ireland, and then obviously from Joe Biden. He's been one of the most vocal critics of these arrangements. So the question is kind of what role does Joe Biden play in this? And I suppose it's twofold beyond the kind of silly stuff about about him being some sort of Republican or whatever. I suppose Mm -hmm. the first one is the question all along, the case being made by Brexiteers is that once we leave the European Union, we can secure great trade deals around the world. It's been a real, a, a very common Brexiteer argument that we can replace the trade loss with the EU with some great trade deal with the United States. The question is whether that would become less possible under Joe Biden than it was under Donald Trump. And Joe Biden has himself warned that a trade deal between the UK and US would be really unlikely if the UK government were to renege on its commitments in the Good Friday Agreement, or if the UK government were to risk a hard border on the island of Ireland. In that sense, Joe Biden is signalling something very important, but in another sense, he's not really doing anything different to the lay of the land as it was under Donald Trump, because obviously a UK-US trade agreement would have to pass Congress. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't always just about Donald Trump. I mean, even if his administration was more likely to sign a trade deal, it was also about passing through the House of Representatives, which had a Democratic majority. And people like Nancy Pelosi were already not likely to vote through 
a deal that jeopardized the Good Friday Agreement. So in, on the actual practical level, having Joe Biden in the White House doesn't make a difference, but it hasn't changed the way we are talking about it in the UK. Mm. I suppose that's basically because even though the fundamental issues around Brexit and the leverage that the US has on this haven't fundamentally changed. It has kind of changed on the level of rhetoric and the signals that one of the great world powers is sending to the United Kingdom. And that's, I think, where it is significant because for a long time, Donald Trump has has you know been supportive of Brexit, very supportive of Boris Johnson's agenda on those issues. Now we finally have someone in a United States president-elect who is echoing the concerns from the Republic of Ireland, from lots of figures from within Northern Ireland, lots of figures from from within the European Union. He's basically just amplifying that message. So I think that's why it is significant. You said, you you mentioned the the silly stuff, as you called it. As a UK correspondent, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that. Because in the first days after Joe Biden won, there were a fair few Obama staffers who were talking in very negative terms about the language that Boris Johnson had used about Obama and this stuff had really stung when he called, when he said that Obama had a ancestral dislike for the British Empire because of his part of Kenyan ancestry. I mean, it was a throwaway comment in an article, but it, it really had an impact and these Obama administration staffers were citing it back to Boris Johnson when he, he congratulated Joe Biden. And just on, on the back of that, I'm just wondering... We've now seen some rhetoric which almost echoes that kind of language in the way that Joe Biden's Irishness is talked about. To me, it seems like a sign of almost immaturity. There are reasons that Joe Biden might not like Brexit and the fact that he is like eighth generation Irish American or whatever probably isn't at the top. And the reason that is at the top is his values and the fact that he's a US president and president-elect and he sees he sees a need for to defend US national interests as he sees them. And this kind of, I suppose, almost ethnic essentialism in the way this is talked about in the UK strikes me as immature and, and counterproductive. And I'm interested as a UK correspondent, what do you think about that? Sorry, just to like jump in on that on that question. I interviewed a gentleman by the name of Thomas Wright, who works on all of these issues here in, in Washington, DC. And his theory, when I asked him about this and also why people said, oh, well, Joe Biden is just saying that, that nothing can hurt the Good Friday Agreement. It's just because they're trying to win the Irish American vote, which like isn't really a vote that people court here in the 21st century explicitly, but no matter. And basically what he said is that for a certain type of pro-Brexit conservative, it is easier to wrap your mind around, oh, well, it's just, you know, that's just politics or, oh, that's just because he's Irish than to say, oh, wait, that's actually a red line from a policy perspective that we cannot cross. And that if we do, we'll have significant ramifications for international relations. And so I guess as you're you're thinking about this, do you think that that's right? It's funny, isn't it? It's difficult to talk about politicians in the US with Irish heritage because I don't think that they all fall under the same bracket. I think there's probably a spectrum where definitely there are certain American politicians who probably have an Irish Republican outlook on Irish politics because of their Irish heritage. And historically, there have definitely been Irish politicians who at the most extreme end were involved in fundraising for the IRA and have historically been very very welcoming of, of Sinn Féin political leaders, for example. But then there's a whole spectrum through like shades of 
of softer Irish nationalism through to where I think Joe Biden is, which is an interest in the politics of that state because partly of his heritage, but more significantly because of the historical politics of the Democratic Party and the role that the US has played in the peace process in Northern Ireland and the US's sort of self-appointed role as a guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. Like I think that the best parallel is someone like Nancy Pelosi, who isn't Irish, she's Italian-American, but still sees the US as having an important stake in the peace relations on the island of Ireland. So, but but then I think the, the corollary of that is that occasionally Joe Biden courts it himself, mm. um, which I'm quite interested in, in that I was actually reading a piece in Le Monde about this, about how Joe Biden's Irishness is stressing out British politicians, basically. And they opened their account with this snapshot of Joe Biden recently being sort of bombarded by reporters and camera crews from all around the world. And the reporter from the BBC, you know, calls out, you know, Joe Biden, BBC. And then he says, BBC, I'm Irish. So I think there there is probably an extent to which he does align himself with a kind of soft Irish nationalism, but that doesn't take away his important stake as a kind of third party objective guarantor of, of the peace agreement. Right. When I say that Irish Americans don't vote as a block, I'm not saying that there aren't extremely proud Irish Americans, which anybody who has spent time, certainly in, in certain parts of this country, uh, will realize very, very quickly that there are. But what I'm saying, I guess, is that most Irish Americans they're not first or second generation Irish American. And so have been assimilated is not even the right word, but it's that they, they'll vote now as white voters or suburban voters or, or urban voters, or it's just that that is no longer the primary way by which we identify Irish American voters, because not only are there so many people who have Irish American heritage, but there's just other more recent, I guess, or more pressing factors that have kind of subsumed that Also, an interesting side note is that our first Irish Catholic, Irish American president, and indeed first Catholic president, John F. Kennedy, when he was coming up, his family was very intentional that they that they were not Irish American. They were American, right? Like the the Joe Kennedy dynasty was meant to be like, no, we're we're in the United States now. And it was only when they realized, oh, wait, you're running in Massachusetts and specifically in Boston, you're going to need not just Irish American, but Jewish American, Italian American votes. And there is a political advantage to be had by by presenting yourself as like the champion of immigrants, that that's when the kind of JFK, like Irish American darling narrative took off. So yes, it can it can absolutely be played and still is obviously played on for political reasons or for kind of a quip. But I would, again, stress that that Joe Biden is making a policy argument. He's not just trying to get votes. But I do have one last question for you, Alva, before we move on to to our next segment, which is there's this kind of thinking that says that Ireland can be a bridge because of like because Joe Biden is Irish American and because of how Ireland has positioned itself, that it can be a bridge between the United States and the EU and the United States and the UK. My own feeling on this is that DC has good relations with Berlin and with Paris and with Brussels and doesn't need to go through through Ireland. And also even with the UK, I mean, not to quote my piece from last week, the US-UK relationship is actually extremely robust. If you look at, you know, if you look at the defense cooperation, if you look at intelligence sharing, if you look at 
the soft cultural exchange. There are so many people invested in keeping this thing running and we get so caught up on the idea of like, is it special? You know, is it the special <laughs> relationship that we lose sight of the fact that actually it's an extremely close relationship and a, and a, a strong one. Anyway, that's my spicy take. But I wanted to hear what you thought of this idea that, oh, Ireland can be the bridge from the between the US and the UK or the US and the EU. My take is exactly the same as yours you'll be pleased to know in that I I just think love it I don't know I suppose it's just a kind of complicated and, and potentially a slightly irrelevant consideration because as you say the UK and US have a very strong relationship on their own and same with the US and, and the EU I know that the Biden administration probably does have a personal grievance, understandably, some might argue, with Boris Johnson for his comments that Edo quoted about Barack Obama having a sort of an ancestral dislike of the United Kingdom and a kind of, a kind of resentment because of his Kenyan heritage. There's probably a personal grievance there and there is a difference of opinion over Brexit and and over how the UK government is planning to approach issues on the Irish border but I you know I think they are all grown-ups ultimately and in a way it's it's about much more than the individual leaders of those countries it's about the really close security cooperation and defense cooperation and in some ways I mean Ireland has much less of a relationship with the US on issues like that than the UK does so I just sort of, I don't see how strategically Ireland would be very helpful in terms of bridging between the US and the UK. And then I suppose with the EU, Joe Biden would clearly find a very warm home in, in Ireland when he eventually goes. And I don't know if either of you have seen, but there is just, like there's a, a hilarious amount of coverage of Joe Biden's ancestral home in County Mayo. Yes. And, <laughs> and like, oh, he's going to get such a warm, warm welcome. You know, he's one of our, Ireland's proudest sons now. You know, no one ever, ever having really owned his Irish heritage before then. So I suppose he will have a very warm reception in Ireland, which is no bad thing when Ireland is a really strategic player in the EU at the moment in terms of Brexit negotiations that really the EU is negotiating on Ireland's behalf because it is the country with by far the biggest stake in the Brexit negotiations. So maybe in that sense, but mainly I, I think that probably the US doesn't really need Ireland's help making, making friends or, or maintaining relationships. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. It's now time for a section that Alva and other colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call... You Ask Us. Well done. We have a question from an anonymous listener. Biden has told Irish TV that reinstating a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic would, quote, not be right, end quote. So how will Boris Johnson keep his promise of unfettered trade between NI and Great Britain? Okay, well, this has not been solved yet by world leaders, so we're going to let all of us solve it. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, the way that question is worded, it's very clear that the person asking the question already understands 
the difficulties and indeed impossibilities inherent in that question and maybe doesn't need them explained. But I suppose the bottom line is I have no idea (laughs) because as you say, no one has really managed to resolve that question. I suppose my my only main thought is that it probably won't get to that point for various reasons because ultimately no one really wants to reinstate a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and in terms of unpacking the question there's a risk that a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic would be reinstated if the United Kingdom reneges on its commitments in the Northern Ireland Protocol so if it follows through with the internal market bill that it's bringing in and then refuses to carry out checks on goods between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland, therefore leaving the Republic of Ireland and the EU in a really tricky situation where goods coming into its internal market aren't being checked and and a real risk of needing to bring in border checks. So that's a very, very real risk. But I suppose there are several hurdles before we get to that point in that it is I think probably impossible for commentators to really know beyond a hunch how much Boris Johnson and his government really intend to follow through on those plans and how much of it is a sort of game of parallel brinkmanship that you bring in this legislation at the same time as you're negotiating your future relationship. So I suppose the the answer is if the UK gets a deal with the EU I think it's unlikely that they would need to renege on their commitments with the Northern Ireland Protocol. I feel like there's been a bit of confusion about this, but the Northern Ireland Protocol, the commitment to check goods between GB and Northern Ireland, will apply no matter what, whether there's a deal or not. But it's much less important if there is a deal because there'll be fewer things to check. So there'll be, I mean, assuming that there's a sort of a high level of regulatory and customs cooperation There would still need to be checks in terms of certain standards that the EU maintains, but broadly, they could be quite minimal. And I don't really see a case for the UK government needing to renege on its promises if it gets a deal, basically. And I still think that a deal is quite likely, so it might not get to that. But even if there is no deal, there has been such opposition to this bill And it's so politically difficult and it isn't set in stone yet. There are still mechanisms through which the government could backtrack on its plan not to follow through with its international legal commitments. So I think that even if there was no deal, the government wouldn't necessarily follow through on it. So I think the risk of the hard border, even though it's very real, given when we're like how we are looking at this right now, Mm -hmm. I think there are still which I hopefully have outlined not too messily, given how complicated it is, there are still kind of several hurdles to jump through before we got to that point. But the second part of the question on then how will Boris Johnson keep his promise of unfettered trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, he won't. I mean, the only way Mm -hmm. that he can follow through on on that quote-unquote promise is by breaking international law. If he had really wanted unfettered access between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, he shouldn't have signed an international treaty saying that he saying that he mm-hmm. would do that. There's clearly no way of making sure that both situations are true. But I think it's just far more likely that Boris Johnson reneges on his kind of half-hearted promise to unionists and backtracks on his rhetoric than 
in stating a hard border in Northern Ireland. I guess the only thing that I would add to this is that the US does mean it. They And it's not just Biden and it's not because he's like a proud son of Ireland. This is one of the, the Good Friday Agreement the US is tremendously proud of. It's like the one, not that, not that the subject matter is not complicated, but like in terms of the ramifications for our actions, it's mm-hmm. it's one of the good things that we did in the post-Cold War period, you know, I think is how it's seen among, among policymakers. Like, and they take ownership of it for that reason. Uh, you know, there's a reason that uh, Mick Mulvaney was not, it was in Trump's White House. And even he was like, no, no, we mean it. So those thinking, oh, well, he's just saying it, he's not. And it's a shame because, or it would be a shame because I actually think that there's a lot that a Biden White House and and the UK can do together because he's. I think we're going to see this renewed commitment to multilateralism. In some ways, this is actually a more natural partner for the UK than the Trump White House was, but not if they, not if they do this. The aim of having unfettered trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom is actually like a perfectly legitimate one. And the problem here is not that Boris Johnson is saying that that's what he wants. The problem is that unionists, so people who hold the United Kingdom dear in Northern Ireland, mainly British um, Ulster Protestants, over you know half of the Northern Irish population, those people have been arguing the entire time that it's fundamental to their interpretation of the Good Friday Agreement and their rights as unionists and and their sense of the cohesion of this union that they should be able to trade within their own country mm-hmm. without any sort of difference. And Boris Johnson always agreed with them. And Theresa May before him bent over backwards in her negotiations with the EU to ensure that that principle was upheld and it was Boris Johnson at the 11th hour who reneged on that promise and basically threw Northern Irish Unionists under the bus and he signed a withdrawal agreement that would just of necessity bring about a border down the Irish Sea and Unionists have been understandably very upset about that and you can make the case that that is fundamentally corrosive to the Good Friday Agreement from their perspective. The problem is that Boris Johnson's already signed the international treaty and he's acting in very bad faith by using this unionist argument to renege on international law or by talking about potentially breaking international law and putting into train steps in the UK Parliament to do so. The fundamental principle isn't necessarily wrong but he only has himself to blame for doing it. And that's why it's disingenuous. You know, when the British government talks about protecting the Good Friday Agreement from a British perspective or from the perspective of maintaining the union, there's a grain of truth in it. And, you know, there's a separate debate to be had about, you know, is a border down the Irish Sea anything like, you know, a hard border on the island of Ireland, you know, a land border, a sea border. The circumstances are very, very different. And that's a kind of a very heated separate discussion to have but fundamentally I think that that can be a bit lost when people talk about prioritizing the border on the island of Ireland Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's sufficient justification for the way the UK government is now approaching this but it doesn't necessarily mean that the concerns of Ulster unionists are completely invalid Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's a really good point the only thing I'd add to that is Based on how people talk about it here and, and what I've heard like from people in France and Germany and elsewhere, 
this may be a negotiating strategy. It may not be particularly sincere, as, as you've suggested. And ultimately, this particular dispute will be resolved one way or the other. But the principle of the UK government deciding that it will, first of all, break international law and sort of announce that with fanfare has been noted in Europe and, and elsewhere and in my view has done damage to the UK's reputation because as as I say this particular dispute will at some point be resolved but the impact of this on the UK's reputation which which on certain issues is really good for instance on international law on international aid these are development aid these are points on which the UK is greatly admired in Europe and across the world and for having gone back on on this and using international laws as a negotiating ploy potentially has done damage to the UK. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Keep them coming to into us at uaskus.co.uk and look out for our announcement of our guest next week on our international Twitter account at Statesman World. Now, as ever, for our final segment, we're going to take a look ahead. Alva, what in global affairs will you be watching closely next week? The thing I'm looking at, I hope that this isn't slightly cheating the question. I'm going to be observing with interest the beginnings of conversations about the centenary of Northern Ireland, which is happening in 2021. The reason I talk about this happening in the next week is because the Irish Embassy in the UK, based in London, is organising its first keynote event about the Northern Irish centenary next week with some quite prominent historians and figures from Irish and British public life. I just think it's the beginning of a very interesting time in British-Irish relations and within the broader conversation about the future of the Union because there's a lot of talk about the Scottish parliamentary elections in May of next year. The great concern of the UK government is that that will lead to a chain of events that could lead to Scottish independence. There is a parallel conversation happening on the island of Ireland at the moment about the implications of Brexit for Irish unity and certainly the leader of Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin did did very well in the Republic of Ireland at the last general election. The Sinn Féin leader and that party are, are making that case very strongly. There's certainly no guarantee that support for Irish unity in the North is anything close to what it would be for Scottish independence at the moment, where we are seeing a majority in favour of Scottish independence as it stands. It's a different situation in Northern Ireland, but I think that this is a very difficult moment to mark for, for the UK and for Ireland, because the centenary of Northern Ireland is not really necessarily grounds for celebration for a lot of people, as well as being a moment for for celebration for lots of members of the unionist community and I just think that the way that will be marked by the UK government and the Irish government and the way that plays into these much bigger questions about the future of the union will be very interesting starting this week which is why it's relevant. Mm, So stay tuned for that. Ido, what will you be watching next week? There's an election in Romania which will be quite interesting because the current prime minister is from the Liberal Party and he took office after several corruption scandals sunk the Social Democratic Party. So it'll be it'll be quite interesting to to look at that and see if the Liberal Party manages to hold office because Romania is hilariously corrupt and certainly was under the Social Democrats. And so whether Romania will 
be able to turn the tide in this election and manage to push back the corruption that had been plaguing it will be will be one to watch. And what will you be looking at, Emily? Well, I would just add that the interesting thing about Romania is that even though there is so much corruption, I once did a reporting trip where I went to Romania and then Slovakia. And part of what I was reporting on was corruption. And in Slovakia, they were so jealous. And this was when like the year 2017. So it was the year of anti-corruption protests in both places. And in Slovakia, they were like, at least people in Romania go to jail. They then come out of jail and continue their political positions, but there's some accountability. So yes, I agree with you that that will be an interesting potential next chapter in the Romania corruption story. I will be looking at something much smaller in some ways, which is what happens with the announcement of Biden's future nominee for Secretary of Defense. The reason I say this is that most of the people who have been selected so far are the people who we knew he was going to say, right? So for example, we kind of knew that Tony Blinken was going to either be the person he was going to have as his national security advisor or put forward for Secretary of State. The person that everybody thought would be, or and most people think will be Secretary of Defense is Michelle Flournoy, who would be the first woman ever to be Secretary of Defense. However, she and Blinken co-founded this firm called West Exec together, where you know they had defense contractors for clients. There is a push to not have a defense secretary with ties to the defense industry. And further, there's now kind of a, a push to not have the secretaries of state and defense come from the same firm. So we will see. We will see what happens there. How he handles this and who he puts into that role and whether or not it's her will tell us something about who Biden is going to listen to and when. Because remember, Blinken also co-founded this this firm and is you know a highly qualified, but is nevertheless going to be the, the nominee for Secretary of State. So I'll be uh, keeping an eye and an ear on that. With that, all that remains is for us to say a huge thank you to Alva Ray for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. And if you enjoy hearing Alva's dulcet tones, and you can listen to her on the New Statesman podcast. <laughs> As a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review and follow all of our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 